today being okay with being okay. Or why admitting we are less perfect may make us more so. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. Uh, the provocation for the topic today, the discussion today, uh, is a hobby of mine. So if you'll indulge me for five minutes, uh, I can explain at least from where this idea comes for today. Uh, I have, you know, I took up six or seven or eight years ago, the hobby. Uh, it's, I, calling it a hobby just seems so cheap, but whatever, uh, of astrophotography. Right, so I've loved astronomy since I was a little kid. Uh, I, you know, my parents took me to the McDonald Observatory when I was three years old. Uh, we lived out in West Texas at the time, so it wasn't that great a journey, not as far a journey, but it was memorable for me. And I was three years old, and it really shaped. Uh, I mean, I don't know why, but I just love everything about the night sky and being able to interact with it in any way at all. And I have some ideas for why that would be, and I'd love to talk about those another time. I think part of it is that uh, the night sky, and I was sharing this with a really good friend of mine uh, just the other day as we were looking through a telescope, uh, but it is, I think, partially that the night sky is as close as you can get in the material world to something that's eternal, to something that is uh, persistent, uh, and certainly, relative to our lives, most of the objects of the night sky, the stars, they're, that's, that's why they're the perfect model of fate or determinism or the fixity of the universe, because they don't seem to change uh, in the entire lifetime of a person. So anyway, uh, my, so, so, I took, so what, what happened was, a few years ago, I realized I needed something to distract me on occasion and give me a just sort of a break. And so I uh, acquired some astrophotography equipment, a telescope, and you know, stuff like that. And uh, took, you know, thought I, what I really want to do because because if you look through telescopes long enough, oh, see, I'm going to get distracted and start talking about this the whole time. So I need to get back on task. But if you look through a telescope long enough, you realize, you can only see so much with your naked eye. And I know it's not the naked eye because you've got a telescope, but I mean visually. And of course, everything you see is visual. But the opposite of that is seeing it through a camera, right? And so when you're looking with your eye through a telescope, you can only see so much based on the contrast in the sky and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But also just because some, a lot of these objects are just extremely dim and your eye can't collect enough light to see the object, even if you have a really big telescope. Uh, yeah, it's, it, but anyway. But if you can collect light for an hour on a camera uh, sensor, 
then you collect enough photons that you can see things that your eye is just not sensitive enough to see. And so I wanted, I thought, well, I, I want to do some of that too. So I'll get a telescope and I'll put a camera on it. So I've started doing astrophotography, which becomes incredibly complex very fast. It requires all kinds of math and engineering and blah, blah, blah. And I'm acting as if I can do all of that stuff on my own. But the point is that you have to do a lot of work just to get a first shot. And then to develop that over time, well, what happened was as soon as I got my telescope, of course, you set it up in the backyard and you just, you know, you just point it around the sky just manually. Forget the, the little motor that turns it and keeps it uh, in relation to the earth spinning and all that kind of stuff. You just start moving it around the sky and looking through the eyepiece and like, oh, I can see a star. And, oh, look over there. And I swung it around and lo and behold, there was this nebula in Orion. I didn't know what it was at that. Well, I did. I recognized it after a couple of minutes. And I'm talking in Dallas because this nebula is so bright. And I'm just so excited. I ran and grabbed my camera and I stuck it where the eyepiece would be and figured out how to get something close to focus and uh, and and took a shot, you know, and, and it was just a, a miraculous thing. And I remember I was so excited. I went and showed people the shot, this tiny bluish green blob in the middle of the screen, in the middle of the, you know, I was showing it to them on a phone or whatever device I had. And it was just, you know, it was, it was unrecognizable to anyone else. It's like you, you have a blue blob in the middle of your, of your screen. And it's like, yeah, isn't that glorious? I got a picture of a nebula. Can you believe this? And I've gone from that, uh, and that was the very first day that I had a telescope on my property, uh, on my property, in my backyard, you know, with me. I've gone from that to being able to go up to Colorado and, you know, really focus on some things and take some long shots and get some pretty intricate details of nebula that are uh, fascinating to me. I mean, just mind-blowing to me. Uh, and I love it. I, you know, I never do anything with it, but post it on Instagram or something like that. But I just, I, I really, it, you know, it's transformative. And I still look at my pictures and know that there are so many things wrong with them. Like my stars are still bloated. I know how to eliminate them in some ways. And, you know, blo nobody wants a bloated star. And my planets are still unsharp. Although my moon's getting pretty good, but it's still got some issues with it that I'd like to perfect. Uh, these are shots of these objects, you know. But the planets are just downright unsharp. They're way sharper than they used to be. I can get a lot more detail than I used to, but, you know, they're not perfect. And then there's always someone. I show them a picture of a nebula or Jupiter or something, and they always send me back some James Webb Space Telescope picture. Oh, yeah? Well, look at this. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, with a few billion dollars, yeah, you can get a better. I'm a little defensive about it, admittedly. But in re and, and by the way, that's kind of a joke because, of course, they're sending it back to say, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And look at this shot. And every astronomy buff I know, every astrophotographer I know, looked at the James Webb Space Telescope pictures and just dropped their jaw and said, hallelujah, look at this. This is what we've been wanting. Uh, everybody just loves those shots. And yet we know they're not perfect either. They go a certain distance and no further. I mean, what's 13 point whatever billion light years? I'm just kidding. But the point is they're not perfect. And we all know that because there is no perfection 
in this kind of discipline. You work on it and you improve it and it gets a little bit better, but you could always have the next step up in resolution or the next larger size of being able to magnify something or reproduce it or whatever. And so there's always improvement to be had. And, and I know you know, it's, it's just built into being human, that that's true about us that there's never a time when we need to stop improving. We even had a reminder of this in our chapel. You know, I'm at Criswell College, and Dr. Stephen Sanders, a Greek and New Testament professor for us, uh, was speaking in chapel, did a brilliant job of making this point in general, using Philippians 3 and some of Paul's comments there about how he hasn't attained yet, and yet those who have attained ought to, and this and that knowing that we are headed towards something that's so important we have to become more like it, and yet we're never perfectly there. There's a part of that that all of us just know is the case from experiencing our own lives, and yet there's a part of it that's hard for us to admit about the things that are most important to us because we feel like our own certainty is the concrete foundation on which we stand. We feel like our certitude, our ability to say, oh, I know this with no doubt whatsoever, that that's the foundation on which we stand. And there is a problem with that. I mean, the problem's obvious. Us, we're the problem with that. And yet that's how we feel. And so sometimes I feel like it's important to be reminded of just a practic- the practical reality of living with imprecision, the practical reality of living with the fact that you can be right. Like, you know, it's sort of like the difference between accuracy and precision. You know, hitting something on target is one thing. Hitting it within a certain tiny little uh, perfect aspect within that target is different, and the difference is between accuracy and precision. You're accurate if you hit the target every time. You're precise if you're measuring smaller and smaller portions. You're becoming more and more precise as you measure smaller and smaller portions of the target and say, oh, yeah, you hit within one inch 12 times in a row. Well, now go for a half inch, and you're becoming more and more precise. The reality is we're always trying to become more and more precise. We're trying to gain more and more knowledge and understanding, experience that's applied and useful in the world around us so that we're becoming more and more precise. But no matter how precise we come, part of the reality of being human, of being finite, and the two are, I mean, being human has more limitations than being finite, but this is one of them, that we will never attain perfect precision because there's always another layer to take off. There's always another circle to focus on in the target, just a little closer in. And so I, you know, I, so I, I just wanted to give you a few different ways to think about that, if you're willing to, 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 to walk through it with me real quickly. Real quickly, that's sort of like a joke, isn't it? But, I mean, quickly enough. That, uh, the, so, I, you know, where I'll start is with William James. Uh, again, I, I think this is sort of built into thinking about this, and yeah, I mean, William James is not, uh, you know, a Christian in the way that we would think of Christianity, and I mean that in the in the genuine way. Like, he's not a Christian. He's not a profession, uh, professing Christian. He is a theist, uh, certainly. I mean, he defends uh, or resurrects and restores Pascal's wager and so on. 
But there are some real values in the things that he brings to the way that we think as Americans. I mean, he's sort of the, the guru of pragmatics, right? I mean, he's the pragmatist. And so uh, what I wanted to do is give you, I've done this before from C.S. Pierce uh, and his issues with doubt and why doubt is not that bad a thing. Because you can hear, and, I, and if, if it's not clear, when I say imprecision, that's the same thing in objective terms that doubt is in subjective terms. It's our willingness to acknowledge that there are some, there's some fuzziness in our thinking. And we can't help that. It's just going to be there. So, uh, William, so the, the William James, uh, you know, sort of quotation or sec- segments that I want to read to you are from this little thing he wrote called The Dilemma of Determinism. William James is an advocate of, of uh, free will. Uh, and he, again, he thinks of it slightly differently than I do, and I'm not getting into all the metaphysics of that today. That's not the point. But in, in many ways, what he argues about free will is, is, is revelatory, uh, regarding the nature of human psychology, and and he is sort of the father of American psychology too. I mean, this is this is this is the man, you know. So it's like Jonathan Edwards and William James, the great minds of the American continent. And so, anyway, William James in the dilemma of determinism uh, makes a couple of points that I wanted to reiterate today and sort of use as a foundation for the conversation. Uh, one, and by the way, neither of these are the dilemma. The dilemma that he puts determinism is is partially apparent in this first one, but it's not the point of it. So these are just quotations from that article. If you want to go read it, just look it up. It's available freely online, I believe. Oh, I know it is. It's I'm certain it's on the Gutenberg uh, website, you know, where you can download e-texts and stuff like that. But anyway, it's called The Dilemma of Determinism. Daisy will uh, connect, uh, connect you to a link. Uh, on the website, obviously. She's not going to call you up personally and send you a link or something. But anyway, the dilemma of determinism has these quotes. So listen to this one. First, and these are in the premise to this article. I thus disclaim openly on the threshold all pretension to remove to you, uh, to prove to you, sorry, that the freedom of the will is true. He's, in other words, he's saying, I'm not writing this article to prove something to you about the freedom of the will. The most I hope is to induce some of you to follow my own example in assuming it true, in assuming it true, and then acting as if it were true. If it be true, it seems to me that this is involved in the strict logic of the case. And, and if you'll hang in there, this is what he has said. He has said, look, I'm not, I'm not trying to prove to you that there's a free will. I just want to induce you to follow my example in assuming that it's true and then acting as if it's true. Because if it is true, it's sort of necessary that that's the only way you could hold it. And then he's going to say that again, and now I'm going to read to you the rest of it. Its truth ought not to be forced willy-nilly down our indifferent throats. It ought to be freely espoused by men who can equally well turn their backs upon it. In other words, our first act of freedom, if we are free, ought in all inward propriety to be to affirm that we are free. This should exclude, it seems to me, from the free will side of the question, all hope of a coercive demonstration, a demonstration which I, for one, uh, am perfectly contented to go without. So on the on the first part of this, I, lo- I love this way of arguing it. Uh, he's just saying, you know, if you believe in free will, why would you believe in an argument that would prove free will to the extent that no one could deny it, and then they're forced to believe in it? So you violate their free will and forcing them to believe in free will. Now, there's a way to wiggle out of that particular argument for people who want to go a little more radical in their view of free will. I don't care. But the point is, he's not saying, 
I have the perfect resolution for this philosophical dispute. And he's living in a world where that's what everyone wants to do. Uh, this is the world. You know, the late 19th, early 20th century is the world where people are saying, we can answer every question. We can solve every problem using perfect logic and empirical certitude. We can... And he's saying, uh, that's not going to work. You got, they, we don't have that kind of certainty. And he's saying it here about a specific thing, free will, but that's not the issue. He's just willing to say, look, you're not going to know. I just want to give you a reason to adopt this view. The second part of what he says is this. The arguments I'm about to urge all proceed on two, two suppositions. First, when we make theories about the world and discuss them with one another, we do so in order to attain a conception of things which shall give us subjective satisfaction. I'll talk a lot more about that in a moment. So, you know, we, we study things so that we can satisfy our curiosity. So, oh, yeah, well, that solves the problem. That, that feels right to me. I've got an answer now. And then he says, and second, if there be two conceptions, and the one seems to us on the whole more rational than the other, we're entitled to suppose that the more rational one is the truer of the two. Now, I hope that you're willing to make these suppositions with me, that is, that we're looking for subjective satisfaction and that we can hold a more rational explanation as the truer of two explanations. He says, I hope that you're willing to make these suppositions with me, for I'm afraid that if there be any of you who are not, they'll find very little edification in the rest of what I have to say. I can't stop to argue the point, but I myself believe that I believe all the magnificent achievements of mathematical and physical science, and then he goes on to things that he believes. Our doctrines of evolution, of uniformity of law, and, and the rest, they proceed from our indomitable desire to cast the world into a more rational shape in our minds than the shape into which it is thrown there by the crude order of our experience. Now, the funny thing is here, I don't care whether you agree with him about the things that he's talking about having adopted. That doesn't matter at all. And I know that there might be a little, you know, automatic sort of donkey kick against him saying, well, we want these, you know, we just want to shape the world more rationally for ourselves, and that's why we believe in evolution and uniformity of law and the rest. And you think, oh, but that's not me. I believe in faith. But that's not, th that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is even your belief in the faith that you have, even your confidence in the faith that you have is based on your need to bring the world, your experience, everything that you encounter here, into some kind of order to, to put it in line and make sense of it so that you can say, oh, okay, now I understand what's going on. God is working to reshape my life. That's you making sense of why the world works the way that it does, why it is happening the way that it is. And, it, and, and to say that's not the case would be to deny something fundamental about how God made you, the way Scripture is written. And, I, and I'm not just talking about the Proverbs, but the prophets or anything else, even the ones who limit us and say our ways are not, his ways are not our ways. We'll never understand his, we'll never have a full grasp of the full knowledge and omnipotence and planning and so on of God. Of course we won't, but those statements are to people who need to put in the best order they can on the world the reality that their grasp of it will never be complete because they're not God. Why is he saying that to them? Because they need to grasp it the best that they can. 
But in that best grasp, acknowledge exactly what William James is saying here, that it, it won't be perfect. It will be what it can be, and we'll do the best that we can, and we'll improve constantly, but there will always be something missing there. And, you know, when you, so let me leave behind William James for a second, but make the same point with an example. There is a huge gap between mathematics and poetry, right? There's a huge gap. I mean, and I'm not even saying engineering. You know, doing astrophotography for me was a real challenge because if I were to do the science side of the world, it would be the abstract, theoretical, never put your hands on anything and actually try to do it world. Because I can't make an experiment work. I'm terrible. I'm like, the, the masking tape won't stay on and the, 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 the crayons are not precise enough to draw the whatever. I'm just terrible. I'm like a small child when I'm working with physical objects. So it's the worst. And astrophotography has a lot of physical objects, by the way, that you work with, from the mount to the telescope to the counterweights and everything else. And I'm the worst at it. It's horrible. So it's taken me years just to get to where that stuff sort of works the way it's supposed to. And that's been good for me. It's forced me to, to learn to be better at it. But my point is, I would have been completely abstract, uh, you know, in, in everything that I did. And for that reason, I loved math because it was completely abstract. You could get absolute answers and all of that, right? So in, in, in our way of thinking of disciplines like math, mathematics, and then poetry, you couldn't have much more divergence, right? Because the whole idea behind mathematics, the presumption when you come at mathematics is that you obtain certainty, that you work toward an answer that you can prove. This is why you do proofs in math. So it presumptively requires certainty. Analyticity, I know I can say the word, is the point of math. Oh, we'll just break it down here and you can see all the elements. And of course, two plus two is four because they're all right here and they're absolutely clear and certain in front of you. Poetry is the opposite, absolute opposite. The presumption in poetry is uncertainty. It's flexibility. It's that you come to the poem and read it and the poet has written it so that you are forced to experience the power of interpretation and its application to you and what those ripples of experience and blah, blah, blah mean. I said that mockingly, but I love that. I do love that. I just know you probably hear it that way when it's coming out of my mouth anyway, so I might as well just lean into the mockery you were lending me. Uh, the point is, they're wildly opposite each other, and we, we would say, oh, it's fine that you're never certain about the meaning of a poet, I mean, uh, meaning of a poem, because those poets, I mean, who really wants to know for sure what they meant anyway? Have you seen those people? Mathematicians, on the other hand, they give us something certain. That's fantastic. In reality, and by, and by, I read a biography on John von Neumann uh, just recently, and this is fascinating. You know, I mean, one of the greatest mathematicians ever in, in the 20th century, almost without dispute, the greatest mathematician. And, you know, he's one of, the, one of the people who just acknowledges out front that it's almost impossible, it is impossible, to give certitude to mathematics. You don't know the very basic rules of mathematics, and I'm not just talking about acknowledging the definition of an axiom, there, that, there are, that there is never a point at which you can prove that math is actually provable and so on. Those kinds of things, I know, I'm not a mathematician, I'm not using precise language, I haven't done it since I was in college, and that was 40 years ago. So, But the language is close enough. 
to make the point that even in terms of what we would think of as the most certain and clear of the disciplines, mathematics, pure, abstract mathematics, we just are not as certain as we think we are. And so if I were to apply that, you know, directly to some of the things that uh, hit us or to try to get us all to acknowledge something we're probably not comfortable with but should be, then I would use, let's say, Bible study. Or the study of any text is fine. But, you know, on the presumption, most of us are believers. Most of us are trying to follow Christ. And we're studying the scriptures and trying to learn what it says. And, and, and you know, and I found that people are willing to be honest about this because we don't want to get that wrong. You know, we don't, we don't want to study scripture and get it wrong. And so I ask, I ask a question of my students I have for years, decades now. When is it, you know, when you're studying a passage, when is it, that you stop searching for answers in the passage that you're studying? When is it that you say, oh, okay, now I'm done? And I don't mean by that you say, I'm done and I never have to study again. I don't, I'm not being absolute about it. I just mean on this passage. Oh, I'm going to read the 100th Psalm today, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to understand what this means. When is it that you go, ah, now I get it. I, oh, that's great. That's fantastic. And maybe you don't say, uh, and I know everything about this passage now. Of course, you. And I, don't, I don't know anyone who would really say that. But you do walk away from it going, okay, I, I answered the questions I needed to answer, and now I understand what that passage meant for me today, you know, something like that. When is it that you stop that search for answers in the passage that you were studying? And the, and the answer to that is simple. It's whenever the answer you found satisfied you. It's when you said, oh, oh, that works. That does it. I'm satisfied. That's the subjective satisfaction that William James was talking about. And it's wonderful. I'm not not even saying it's a bad thing. It's It's a great thing. But the reality of that then is that we're determining the meaning of passages on the basis of our personal satisfaction, not that some objective you know, like one of those Hallmark cards or a holiday card or a gift card or whatever, where you open it up and the thing pops up out at you. You know, it's like a 3D image that pops up out of the, out of the card as if that's what happens in the text. You know, you study and you study and you study and, and then finally, bing, oh, it popped out at me. There it is. I can see it now. Or one of those 3D images, you know, that you finally have to get the focus on and you know you've seen it now. It's not like that. The reality is when we're subjectively satisfied, we think we have found the answer to it. And how many times have we been subjectively satisfied? And as a person who's taught scripture now for more than 40 years, I can tell you, I can't even, I would never be able to count the number of times that I've been satisfied with having resolved the meaning of a text and taught it, and had conversations about it, and used it as an illustration, only to come back later and go, and either hear someone talk about it, read some book about it, or just in my own study, having learned more, come back to that text and go, ooh, actually, that's quite the opposite of what I thought it was saying. Or, most often, wow, that has a lot more meaning to it than I realized it had. Uh, and and maybe in a completely different direction, not necessarily contradictory, just different direction. I mean, the David and Goliath story is one of the favorite illustrations of this that people use regularly because it's so easy to do. 
and all of these are pertinent. Uh, none of them are wicked. Uh, to use David and Goliath as a story to encourage underdogs, you can beat that big mean man. Just throw a rock at him. Uh, that kind of story, you know, of underdogs overcoming makes sense out of David and Goliath. And you leave the story saying, I understand what God was saying. Don't be afraid of big enemies. On, and then, but then you go beyond that. And beyond that, you have people who read it and go, well, that's not the story. The story, and I've heard plenty of people say this, and it's not bad. There's nothing wrong with this. I've heard plenty of people say, the story's not you're David and you can defeat those great giants that are against you. But instead, David is your Messiah and you need to rely on him. And while you're cowering in fear on the corners and the sidelines, He's out there fighting the battle for you and winning the victory. Man, that'll make you raise your arms and go, oh, I wish I'd seen that the first time. I don't have to defeat the giant. I need to rely on someone who can defeat the giant, and he will, and that's pretty glorious. But then you go beyond that, and you go, well, that's not actually directly or fully what the text is getting at, and I go through it, and this is the point I'm at now, but I don't know how much more is there. Uh, I go through it and realize, oh, well, this story is exactly parallel to the one with Jonathan and the Philistine garrison, and Jonathan and David are compared in ways that make them identical, and Jonathan's supposed to inherit the throne, and he's not going to, and he willingly gives his clothes to David, who does inherit the throne. It's about God having made David the anointed one. That's it. David is the anointed one, and God chooses the Messiah, and he's the Messiah, and that's the only one in whom we're going to find salvation and so on. And so I, and I love that. I think it's a magnificent passage for those reasons. My point is, if we just stop at the end of reading a passage, now, my point was not, wow, you were wrong. There's no underdog victory in David and Goliath. I mean, Israel is an underdog, and it's a big deal that God uses this tiny nation, which he says is tiny, in order to defeat very powerful nations. So there's no doubt the underdog story is in David and Goliath. I'm not being critical of that interpretation. It's fine. My point is it's not complete. And if we stop when we have found a meaning, when, if we stop when, when we have found an answer that satisfies us, then we stop before we get to the end. And that's a shame. And, that's, and it happens enough that I just, I mean... It happens as a distraction, and what it, what it turns into is this uh, attitude that we develop as believers, as Christians sometimes, because we know, we know something, and we're not just believers, we know it, and we develop an attitude sometimes uh, that is so arrogant and so opposite of the demeanor and humility that ought to attend Christianity that in some sense, I just want to break down the sense that if we're not absolutely certain about everything we say, our faith must not be real. Uh, that's, that's a huge mistake. And it puts our attitude and demeanor and reactions to other people who are around us in an indefensible place in terms of what Christianity is actually about. And so I, so I just wanted to give you know, an example or two to make the point that it's okay when we're not able to say, I have the perfect answer for this, that it's okay when we say, you know, I'm, I'm not sure anyone's ever going to be able to give you a perfect answer on this. 
I'm not saying that means we quit looking. I'm not saying it means we quit studying. I'm not saying we give up on the proposition that we might be able to find a certain answer to this or that. But I am saying that we stop pretending that that's the only thing that could have value and that we acknowledge that there actually is real value in acknowledging the fuzziness of some of the things that we hold, the imprecision in those things, the bloated stars even. Nah, let's not have bloated stars. Back to, so here's an example. Classical tragedies are a perfect model of this. Now, sometimes these tragedies, you know, I mean like the Greek tragedies and things like that. Sometimes these tragedies end in such a way that the author is using some deus ex machina, you know, so, to solve the problem. So the, you know, the, the, the Athena lands on the road and, so, and resolves the conflict and everyone goes home happy. The God in the machine, right? So the God drops on the stage, solves the problem. You know, it's T-Rex at the end of Jurassic Park if you haven't ever seen it. So there's, there's always that, this, this pretense that there's an easy resolution. But it, not, not always. There are some times that, that uh, those ex, uh, uh, descriptions. But on the norm, tragedies are written to make the point that there are things to which there is no simple or clear or maybe even possible resolution to the dilemma that's faced, in this case, by the hero. And, you know, one example, and I'm not saying there's no description of a resolution in this one, because in the Arrestia, there is something at the end that's describing the way Athenian justice is meted out. But I will tell you this, that I, I believe in the Arrestia, which I always use as the, you know, my, 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 my classic example of classic tragedy, right? So it's the one I always go to because it's the one I know the best. But, but when you get to the end of the Arrestia, uh, the Arrestia, the trilogy about Arrestes and Agamemnon and Clytemnestra and so on, I'll tell you more about it in just a second, just a tiny bit more. But when you get to the end, you don't get to a resolution that just says, and that's why everything's perfect now. What you get to is a description of Athenian justice with the jury and all that kind of stuff. And the reality that there may not be an easy answer to what's happening, that the court may seem unfair. The jury may seem hung between the verdicts. And you may say to yourself, we got to fix this. We got to find a solution that will always give us a clear answer. But the, the whole tragedy is written to make the point that there may not be a clear answer because the tragedy is just that deeply embedded in the human reality that we face in this world. So, for instance, on this one, and this is one that's built into Scripture, too. I'll mention it in a moment why that is. But on this one, on the Arrestia, you know, Agamemnon, prior to the opening of the story itself in the Arrestia, Agamemnon kills his daughter, Iphigenia. You know, it's a terrible story, but, I mean, this, you know, this is, it's a fiction, first of all, so lighten up. It's a fiction, and it's, but it is a horrible thing, and there's no doubt that things like this had happened. But Agamemnon, you know, kills his daughter, and he does it as a sacrifice. He does it because the gods require him to. Hey, you have two choices. You can go to Troy and lose the war, and all these men die, or you can offer your daughter as a sacrifice, in which case I'll be happy with you, and you can win the war. Uh, It's basically that dilemma that Agamemnon faces, and he chooses to sacrifice his daughter, and they go, and, uh, and, you know, ultimately after so many years, they win the war in Troy, lo and behold. When he comes back, how do you think uh, Iphigenia's mother feels? Uh, Clytemnestra, none too happy with him, just looking for an opportunity. And what does she have to do? Well, here's the thing. 
uh, and we, well, here's the thing. She kills him, you know, so she kills her husband. She waits for an opportunity and she kills her husband. But that means now you have a father who killed his daughter and needed justice. So now you have a wife who killed her husband and now needs justice. So the son comes home, Orestes, and he kills his mother. And now he needs justice. And so the Furies start chasing him around to bring about justice, and that's what finally leads to the description of the Athenian trial. Now, you can read it. You say, you ruined the whole story for me. <laughs> that much of the story is kind of out there. You know, people know that part. And it is well worth reading, by the way, if you want to go pick it up. Uh, the Orestes. So, uh, the Orestia. So anyway, the, so in, uh, if you say, well, what a wicked backwards culture that they think the son has to go kill somebody because somebody killed his father. And then, of course, the really tragic part is it's his mother who did it. But, you know, even that, he shouldn't be out there killing people himself. No, this is the way justice was exacted, not just in Greece, but in Israel under the law. This is what God prescribed in the Avenger of Blood accounts. And I'm not going to go into the details of it because it would take too much time, but go read it. Numbers 35, uh, there is the description, the cities of refuge are there to protect a person who believes that they should be vindicated for whatever act they did and therefore protected from the Avenger of Blood. And God says, if this person actually committed a crime, if they actually did kill someone that they, you know, by as murder, not just by accident or something, but as murder, they killed him, then the avenger of blood himself should put the murderer to death. And if you say the avenger of blood, that sounds like the executioner in England. Or It's not. It's the nearest kin. You know, it's the son or the father or the whoever it is that's next of kin. It's their responsibility to go and kill that person. And if you think, well, that's just justice from God and it's all done, then you misunderstand what's happening both in I mean, in every case, in Cain and Abel, when Abel is killed and his blood cries out from the ground through Exodus with uh, the waters turning to blood in the river, uh, the river where the babies had been drowned, all the way through to the New Testament when the creeks and the streams are turned to blood because the earth is finally belching up the blood that it's been soaking up from this pattern throughout its history that blood begets blood until God finally makes it right in the end. Now, why do I say all of that? Well, I mean, let's give it a practical application in our culture. If you take this, you know, the practice of capital punishment in our culture, one of the objections to it from people who believe that it should never be practiced is that it's never perfect. This is my objection to it. I believe in the theory behind capital punishment. I believe life for life, that kind of thing makes sense and that the government carries the sword for a purpose, even in the New Testament. I'm, I, I, I believe in that. And yet, I know that because of the injustice behind it, because it's not applied equitably and because some people are at a disadvantage in the courtroom, that there's always going to be a possibility for catastrophic consequences like an innocent person being executed by a state. Go read the story of the Martinsville Seven sometimes if you just want an example of how that could happen and may have happened and seems to have happened. But there are plenty of other cases or examples. I'm not going to tell the story right now. You can look it up. And that one's racially 
uh, rooted, which is one of the fundamental problems in American society when it comes to capital punishment's history and how it's been applied. Here's the thing. I could say to you, I know for certain capital punishment, and I can make a really good argument of this, for certain capital punishment should never be practiced because it will never be perfectly applied because our justice system will never be able to perfectly contemplate the guilt of the person. In other words, we'll never be certain that they're guilty. We'll just know as well as we can that they're guilty. And then we're going to be putting innocent people to death. And the fact that you put one innocent person to death is enough to make you stop doing capital punishment. That's the argument that people would make. Again, I'm not making, I'm not actually making that argument, but you can, and it's a strong argument. It's a worthwhile argument. I would consider it, and I mean that. Like, I'm not sure about this. Why am I not sure? Because the other side of it is victims and society still deserve justice against the most heinous crimes that were committed. They still deserve that. And say, well, we're not going to put anyone to death because we might accidentally put the wrong person to death means we're going to let this terrible person who did horrible things to your family member, we're going to let them continue to live out their life. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to practice this justice. I'm not saying to you, therefore, we should practice capital punishment. I'm not saying to you, therefore, we shouldn't practice capital punishment. I'm saying to you, we're always going to have to have a debate, discussion, and some tension about whether or how we apply capital punishment. And we ought to be willing to acknowledge that. You know, you're right. This is dangerous. This is risky. Not sure exactly how to resolve this dilemma because dilemmas are real. Uh, other moral dilemmas bring us to the same point. Uh, and I think, you know, what, I'm, what I, what I want to do here is uh, pause because I want to give you some examples of moral dilemmas that leave us here. And this is really what I wanted to get to because what we'd like is an easy and certain way to resolve every dispute that we have in our mind about what's the right thing to do in a given circumstance, right? And we've talked about moral dilemmas before, but I want to give some examples that are different and talk about those, and they'll take more time than we have right now. So allow me to make a couple of points here and, uh, and, and, and draw the conclusion, and then I want to go back in another episode, maybe the next episode, maybe we'll do it two or three episodes hence, but to go back and give more examples of some moral dilemmas, especially some ethical dilemmas that make people uncomfortable because they believe we ought to have a clear, precise, certain answer to every question that we face in the world. And to be able to say, that's not the resolution we should be looking for. We should be looking for some resolution, but that's not the one. And so, you know, I, my point is that, uh, you know, admitting that we're too inept to grasp a truth firmly does not insult the truth's firmness, but our grip's firmness. Acknowledging that the way we read scripture is always tainted doesn't insult scripture's authority or power. It insults ours. And that's not a bad thing to insult. I need, I need a lot of insults to keep me where I actually am in the world. And, you know, in some ways, I'll say, and I'll spend more time on this next time, but Kierkegaard's not wrong about faith. He's the one with the blind leap and all that stuff. But, I, and again, I'm, I'm not saying he's completely right, but I'm saying in some ways he's not wrong. It's not a bad thing to hold our opinions in abeyance and then to humble ourselves into a position of trust and to find nothing more in the end than the fact that it's a good thing the one we trusted really does have the authority he claimed when he rose from the dead. Certain 
I do not need to be. Faithful, humble, listening, learning? I do. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at berrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.